Let's ask the Lord to encounter us with his word. How many love the word of God? Come on, how many love the word of God? All right. So let's ask the Lord to impart into our hearts his word. Father, we ask you by your spirit that you would teach us this morning, that you would take your living word and implant it inside of our hearts. We say we have good soil here that is receptive to you and to your word, and we pray that you would implant truth inside of us, Lord, that we would never be the same. I pray that your seeds of eternity would be planted in every heart and that no person would escape this room or the live stream without you encountering them with your word. So we say, come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So last week we had the panel talking about relationships and marriage. And one of the questions actually that we got last week was, could we explain what Scripture teaches about divorce and remarriage? But Dave said right away, no, we're not going to do that on Valentine's Day. Um, It's also more involved than just a quick answer, but we do want to talk about that. I can't remember in the history of Heart of the Father, and I've been here from the very beginning, that we've ever really addressed it on a Sunday morning. I think we have on a Wednesday, but we should address it because we're building a culture here of covenant community, and relationships are all important, and divorce and remarriage affect every congregation. It affects ours. It affects a lot of our lives, and so we need to have a good grasp of what God says about it and how to navigate this as a community because we all have a part. We all have a part to play in broken lives in our community where we help to be part of the healing process that the Lord brings into people's lives. So I get that this can be an emotional issue for a lot of people, that there's a lot of uh, baggage that comes with it. So just relax. Um, We want to speak the truth into every aspect of our lives, right? Right? We want the truth to be in every aspect of our lives. And so moving forward, just understanding how to navigate this uh, subject and these issues is important for us as a covenant community. So marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Before we just go to the scriptures that talk about divorce and remarriage and try to draw the boundaries, we actually need to back up a little bit and talk about marriage and what it is. If we're going to get covenant community right, then we must get marriage right first. And so we need to talk about marriage a little bit. I read a, an article recently from a young millennial guy. He's studying for ministry. He's only been married for a couple of years. And um, he was just pondering about marriage and the messages that are out there in culture and in the church. And I want to run this by you and see what you think. He said, what we see played out in entertainment and what our flesh craves by nature is a marriage that simply fulfills our own longings, furthers our own passions, and covers our own inadequacies. Many of us have been desperate for the promise of romance and emotional connection. We come to believe that marriage is only worthwhile when we find the perfect husband or wife for us, someone to meet our needs and to complete our fantasies, the lost puzzle piece, the missing link, the other half of our heart, 
to make us whole and satisfy us in ways that we have not yet experienced. Is that true or false? Is that the message that's out there? Is that the message that we hear in culture all the time? And is that the message that we hear reinforced pretty much in church? Okay. So I want to submit this to you that that is, um, that's good Hallmark Channel and it's bad theology. Okay. We don't want to take our theology from the Hallmark Channel. We want to take it from the Bible. Okay. So we need to look at what God says about marriage because a lot of ideas about it are not correct. We don't have our center right. Our theology today, meaning our understanding of God and his ways, has been skewed in a humanistic way because our whole culture, every day we breathe in the air, the smoke of humanism, that you're the center, that you're the reason, that everything's supposed to be about you, and that if you're not happy, then somebody needs to pay you for that. Okay, that's the air that we breathe every day. Is that the center of our life? Should that be the center point of our lives? And I'm going to say emphatically, no. There is a center point in Scripture of what we should base our lives on, and it affects every single area of our lives. I love history, and years ago I read um, part of the journal of Admiral Byrd, Richard Byrd, he was an explorer. He was one of the early explorers of the North Pole and also of the South Pole in Antarctica. He went down to Antarctica, and they built him an igloo that had a steel frame and then all ice because it's brutally cold down there, as you know. He was one of the early explorers in Antarctica. He went out one day. This was during the season where there is no sunlight at all. And he went out, and he describes in his journal he got out because he had to get some exercise. There's nobody there with him. It's just him. He gets out, and he starts walking. And, of course, it's dark outside. There's just snow and ice everywhere. And he starts walking to get some exercise. And all of a sudden, he stops and panics and goes, Oh, my God, I can't see my hut. And all there is is snow with the wind blowing, and I can't see where my footprints were. And if I can't find my way back to my hut... I'm going to die. And that moment of panic settled on him. And he had a staff that he was walking with that had a point that could stick into ice. And I think the Lord gave him some presence of mind there. He goes, okay, I haven't gone that far. I've looked in every direction. I can't see my hut. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my staff down in the ice right here. And then I'm going to make this my center. And I'm going to go out from the center, always making sure I can keep my eye on where that staff was when I go out. And I'm going to go as far as I can in every direction and look and see if I can see my hut. But I'm always going to keep my center in my eye because that is my anchor point that I always have to come back to. Because if I can't find that, I'm dead. Like if you're trying to head back for your shed and you go, I think it was kind of in that direction. Anybody ever drive like that? Do you usually get to your destination pretty well? No, you don't. You veer off this much, and you're dead. You can't find your hut, you're dead. So he knew that. So he's always keeping out. He's venturing out. He keeps his eye on the stake. And he was out there for a good while, and he thought that he went in most every direction, and he's starting to panic. You can imagine, can't see my hut, can't see my igloo. And finally, 
He went in a different direction, always keeping that center in mind, and he caught a glimpse. Where the, the stars broke through the clouds for just a second, he caught a glimpse of his igloo. Like, oh. Our life is that way. What is that stake? What is the center of the universe? What is the center and the meaning and the purpose of everything in our lives as believers? Is it our own happiness? Is it our own joy? Because that's the way we talk about it a lot of times. I want to suggest to you that the scripture is really clear on this. It is the glory of God. The center of our lives, everything that we do, all of our relationships are supposed to be centered and tethered to the glory of God. And the ultimate good in the universe, the highest good in the universe, is not that we're blessed and have an abundance and have a happy life. It's that God receives the glory and the honor that is due to his name. We were created for his glory. Let me just read you a few verses. You go, "Ah, that's obvious. I get this. Yeah, but we don't live this way. And in relationships, we don't typically live this way either. We live according to what makes us happy. That's not the center that keeps us safe. Romans eleven thirty six. listen to this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Colossians 1, 16. All things have been created by him and for him. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I'm only giving you four. We could go on with page after page. This is the message of the Bible that man was created to glorify his God. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to Oh, no, your own satisfaction. Come on. Be an American. No. The, the center for the Christian is that we do all to the glory of God. What does that mean to do something for the glory of God? I would suggest to you that what it means to glorify God is actually to represent him rightly, to show his value, to show that he is the highest treasure, to show that he is the highest value and the highest worth is in him. That's what it means to glorify God, because that's really true. When we say we magnify you, God, we're not talking about magnifying like you do with a microscope, where there's things that are really small and you're actually making them look a lot bigger than they are. That's not how we magnify God. We magnify God like you do with a telescope where we see a little point of light in space and it's actually a star that is 50 million times bigger than our sun. But it's so far away we can hardly see it so we take a telescope to try to make it have some kind of a semblance of the bigness that it really has in reality. That's how we magnify God. He's huge, he's awesome, he's magnificent and his glory fills the whole earth. It fills it from the universe and how big the universe is to the smallest cell and how that operates. It's incredible. The wisdom, the glory, the grace, and the goodness of God is just pervasive throughout the universe, and it's amazing that we walk blind to it. If you were to count every star that astronomers know that there is right now, which they're always finding out more because they get better telescopes, but last time I read, this is from a secular astronomer, he said if you counted every star that is known right now, How long do you think it would take you to count them if you counted one per second? 
15 trillion years. That's right. That's because he's heard me say that before. Why is the universe so big and massive? Why is it 100 billion light years across? I mean, these numbers are staggering. Why is it so big? Why did God have so much space in between the stars when he created them? Like, why not just have one little solar system? Because the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Space in the universe is saying something every day about God. He's huge. He's all-powerful. There's no one like him. Everything that exists came into existence because of him and for his purposes and for his honor and glory. And the highest good in the universe, this is a mind shift that we need. This is at the heart of all true theology. And our theology has been tainted a lot by humanism, I can tell you. Meaning that man's at the center. One brother said, we're okay with being God-centered as long as we believe that God is man-centered. Can I tell you God's not man-centered? He's God-centered too. Because if he was man-centered, he'd be an idolater, and he's not. Think on that for a little while. We'll keep moving. So the true center of the universe is the glory of God. How do we glorify God in our marriage? This is a key question. How do we glorify God in our marriage? I'm going to suggest to you that we glorify God in our marriage by demonstrating in our marriage his value, his worth, his supremacy, his greatness, and his goodness. Okay? God has a specific plan for marriage, which is amazing, and it's one of the revelations that he gave to Paul. Ephesians chapter 5, if you turn there. I want to just lay the foundation here before we get into talking specifically about divorce and remarriage. This is all important. Ephesians chapter 5. You're familiar with this passage, but I want you to look at it with new eyes this morning. As we read through this, you've heard it at countless weddings if you're like me, or you've read it at countless weddings if you're like me. This is common. Look, here's the problem. Sometimes we read through things and we just buzz through them because we already heard that before. Listen to these verses. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33. I'm going to read it, and I want you to notice the phrase as, A-S, how it's repeated, and just as, because those speak to the purpose of God that was hidden from in all eternity. It's part of his eternal purpose, and Paul understood and got the revelation of it. God showed him this. Wives, verse 22, be subject to your own husbands, say it, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting out of Genesis chapter 2 where God took the rib out of Adam, made the woman, and brought her to him. This is the original marriage. This is the original husband and wife hookup here. So he's quoting that, and then verse 32, notice this. The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Let me do just a little theology lesson for you. Whenever Paul uses the word mystery, it always has a specific meaning. It doesn't just mean something that makes you scratch your head and wonder. Huh, wonder what that was about. It's not that. In Paul, every single time, 100% of the time that he uses this word mystery, the Greek word mysterion, it means the hidden purposes of God in eternity that were revealed in Christ. He talks about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the incarnation, the, min- the mystery of lawlessness when the Antichrist comes, the mystery that we'll all be caught up to be with the Lord forever. These are all revelations that people didn't think of. Nobody thought that the Christ would come and be born in a stable on years and years of compacted animal dung. Nobody thought that he was going to come and not be listened to and be rejected by the religious leaders. Nobody thought, especially, that he was going to come and be crucified as a blasphemer. Nobody figured that out. God had in his eternal counsels, he knew what he was going to do, and he did it because he loves to confound the wise. He loves to take that which is foolish and confound the wise. And so these are mysteries. This is Paul's idea of mystery. There's the hidden purposes of God in eternity that are revealed in Christ. So what does this verse and this passage tell us? The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. When God brought Eve to Adam in the garden, here was the thought inside of his head. This is the revelation. I'm going to make this union and this oneness of a man and a woman together. Because when my son comes and dies and draws all men to himself and he has a body, this is going to be a living representation and message, a preached message of what it's like for him and them to be one in complete oneness and love. So the marriage relationship in its highest goal is what? What is it? He says it right here. It's that in the marriage relationship, we rightly represent what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus and what that relationship looks like. So the husband is supposed to take the role of Jesus in this play. And he's representing what it's like that Jesus and how he treats his people. Husbands, how are we doing? The wife, on the other hand, is in this play, and she is living it out every day that she is uh, relating to her husband in the same way that the redeemed people relate to Jesus. There's a joyful submission. That's the purpose. That's the the ultimate purpose of marriage. That's pretty, pretty tall. That's a pretty far cry from what this 
one brother said wrestling through it, the whole idea of romance, the whole idea of the Hallmark Channel. And the Hallmark Channel is on in our house, just, just so you know. I don't sit there that much, but my girls and my wife love the Hallmark Channel. Look, we all want to feel romance. So, so what am I saying? That there's nothing romantic or there's no feelings that are involved with, with marriage? No, I can tell you after 38 years, I still feel the fire. I do. After 38 years of marriage and seven children, 11 grandchildren, and heart surgery, and heart of the father, I still feel the passion. I, I love feeling the emotion. But that's not the ultimate purpose of marriage. And if I have all of those things, young adults, hear me. If you have all of those things, the enemy of God's best and the enemy of God's glory so often in relationships is our idealism. We want it to be like Jane Austen. And if I don't feel and if I'm not living in these feelings where they're sweeping me along like a river, then there's something wrong. Maybe not. Maybe the greater issue is that we're not focused on what the real center should be is, how can I live, God? You created me and brought us together so that we could be a living expression of what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you, with love and gentleness, that a lot of our marriages lie about Jesus every day? I hope that didn't sound harsh. I tell young couples this when we do premarital counseling. Like, don't let your relationship together lie about the Son of God because he created it for a purpose to demonstrate what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. It's good. My testimony is we're far from perfect. We've had tensions and struggles just like all of you have. But it's mostly been beautiful. It's mostly been beautiful. That's to the glory of God. That's to the honor of the Lord. How so? Here's, here's the key. Here's the key. You have to get back to the center point. And if you concentrate on the center point and hold to the center point, which is how do I this day when I get up, Lord Jesus, how do I glorify you in my marriage in the way that I'm treating my wife? If I'm yelling at her, demeaning her, demanding from her, I'm not rightly representing the Lord in my marriage. I'm not glorifying him because of that. Can I tell you one of the definitions of idolatry is focusing on the blessings of God and delighting in those more than God himself? If our focus in our marriage is on the feelings that we have, on the benefit that we get, more then it's on being the living demonstration of God's glory and the relationship of Jesus with his church. That is a form of idolatry. How do you say that? How can you say that? Because Jesus said it. He said it in Luke chapter 9. If anyone wants to be my disciple and comes after me and does not hate his father, and mother, and brothers, and sisters, and wife, and children, and even his own life. He can't be my disciple. You, you, you know what the point of that is? 
Love for Jesus is here. And every other love starts here. It's possible to make your wife an idol. It's possible to make your children an idol. In homeschool circles where we homeschooled all our kids from kindergarten through 12, I saw it a lot. The kids were were idols to the parents. It can happen. Even the good things. Can I suggest to you that idols are not mostly ugly, hairy, clawed things? They're they're mostly beautiful things that were actually secondary benefits that God gave, but we valued and treasured them more than we valued the Lord himself. It can happen. That's the mystery. You know, the phrase is everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to have a great marriage. But nobody wants to die. We talk about love a lot. And can I just bring this out and reiterate this? Love, the biblical definition of love is rooted in sacrifice. By this we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for one another, right? That's 1 John 3.16. You know John 3.16. That's 1 John 3.16. So love is measured by and rooted in sacrifice. So a life filled with love, a life overflowing with love, is a life that's filled with sacrifice and overflowing with sacrifice. That's real. In America, we don't like to talk about sacrifice and suffering, and our theology is terrible because of it, because the Bible's full of it. Here's the thing. Here's the paradox of the kingdom. Jesus said it five times in the Gospels, okay? Are y'all doing okay out there? Jesus said this five times in the Gospels. He said, this is the law of the kingdom that will stand forever. Whoever seeks to save his life will you lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake, you will what? You'll find real life. Here's the paradox of the kingdom. Lord, if I live in a sacrificial relationship with my spouse, I'm going to be miserable all the time. And I've had people tell me, I'm happy. Did you turn me down on purpose? It's probably a good thing. I, 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 want, I, want to, I want us just to think for a minute. There are times, absolutely, where God wants you to be unhappy. Okay, let's just burst that American bubble. That's hogwash. There are times when God wants you to be unhappy. When you sin and you're grieving, blessed are those who mourn. Right? Come on. There's times when he wants you to be unhappy. When you're going the wrong way and you're in disobedience, he wants you to be unhappy because that's like a red light saying, no, don't go that way. That's, that's not the right way. If you go that way, it's going to end badly for you. Don't go there. So being unhappy is not something that's ungodly. It can serve a good purpose. And if suffering and sacrifice is, is unpalatable to you, which it probably is, because you were raised in America like me, most of you, we don't like that. 
But look, this is the mindset that we need to shift. If we're going to be a loving people, we want to have covenant community where love fills our community. We have to be honest enough to go, that means that I'm going to be called on to sacrifice regularly. That's why the consumer and the spectator culture has developed in church because it's more like going to see a ballet than it is to meet the living God and to have relationship with his people. And I know this doesn't ever preach good. I want to read you a quote by John Piper. It'll be good medicine for your soul. I find Piper to be medicine for my soul because he is radically God-centered, which is highly unusual today. And um, I breathe the air of man-centeredness all day long, just like you do. And I, I, it's just like a, a breath of fresh air to breathe the God-centered vision. God is not simply magnified, I'm sorry, God is not simply magnificently central in the lives of most of our people. This is Piper talking. He's not the sun around which all the planets of our daily lives are held in orbit and find their proper God-appointed place. For most of our people, God is marginal, and a hundred good things usurp his place. Marriage exists to magnify the truth and the worth and the beauty and the greatness of God. I don't think that our love for our wives or theirs for us will glorify God until it flows from a heart that delights in God more than our marriage. Marriage will be preserved for the glory of God and shaped for the glory of God when the glory of God is more precious to us than our marriage. All of this is important for the whole issue of divorce and remarriage. Because if our view of marriage is that it's God's way to make us happy and fulfill all of our emotional desires and our sexual urges, and our identity issues, then we won't ever get it right. Here's the paradox of the kingdom. When you submit to the process of loving well, joy comes joy comes. This is the kingdom paradox. If you lay down your life, you'll find it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. If you sacrifice for me, I will give you back more than you ever gave. It's the paradox of the kingdom. Let's keep the center correct. Okay. Marriage because it is this representation of Christ in the church, God protects it by putting it in a container that's called covenant. The marriage covenant in Scripture is a lifelong commitment to live out the gospel, which is this is how husband says, this is how Jesus loves his people. That's how I'm going to love you. Wife says, this is how God's people relate to him and submit to him and surrender to him and give everything to him. That's how I'm going to relate to you. It's a covenant. Our vows don't say, for as long as we both, uh, they, our vows say, for as long as we both shall live. They don't say, for as long as we both remain happy. 
And for us, being unhappy has been a cause for divorce a lot. Okay, I'm not throwing stones at anybody here at all. And I get that there's emotional pain, and I'm not trying to stir that up or cause more pain or trouble. But pl please hear me. For us to move forward, we have to embrace the truth. This is another quote by Piper, which I love on this topic. He said, the great challenge for the church when it comes to marriage, uh, divorce, and remarriage is to mingle the tears of compassion with the tough love of obedience to God's command. This alone will honor Christ and preserve the spiritual health and power of the church. Malachi 2 talks about marriage as being a covenant. God wants that covenant, and he said one of the reasons that he wants it is because he wants godly seed. That's the best environment where you have two people that are living with God as the center and his glory as their focus, and they raise children in that atmosphere. That's the best possible scenario for raising up disciples. Absolutely is. So God wants it. He hates divorce because it violates his own purpose for marriage. It also takes away that atmosphere for children to be raised in. And it causes carnage. You know divorce is brutal. If you know anybody, you've been involved with it. Like it's touched almost all of our lives. My wife came out of a brutal, awful, horrible divorce situation in her family. Terrible. She still feels the effects of it. It's brutal. Nobody should love it. It's brutal for us. But it also thwarts the purposes and the plans of God. And so... That's why God said, this is so precious to me. I'm going to put it inside of a box called covenant. And this covenant is going to be a lifelong, all-in commitment. So when you get married, we had a conversation after the panel last week around my table. And um, the conversation was, man, you guys just seem to always talk about the hard things and how, how hard it is and all the struggles and whatever. And I'm not sure that it's worth it. And that's actually a pretty good way to think. Be, because if you're going into it for what you're going to get out of it, you're already in a lose. If you're going into it for what you're going to put into it and for how the supply of God in your life is going to flow to your spouse, then you've already got to win. Yeah. I want to read a letter before I get into these last scriptures. Are you guys hanging in there okay? Okay. James Dobson, his dad. So James Dobson started Focus on the Family. If you guys heard that, some of you younger generation may not know who that is, but a lot of family ministry. He's a psychologist. His dad was his hero in his life, and he had this letter that his dad had written to his mom when they were engaged. I want you to hear this. This is the heart of covenant right here. I want you to understand, he's writing to his sweetheart and his fiance. I want you to understand to be fully aware of my feelings concerning the marriage covenant about which we are to enter. I have been taught at my mother's knee and in harmony with the word of God that the marriage vows are inviolable and entering into them. I'm binding myself to you absolutely and for life. The idea of estrangement from you through a divorce for any reason although God allows one, which is infidelity, we'll look at that, will never at any time be allowed to enter into my thinking. I'm not naive on this. On the contrary, I'm fully aware of the possibility 
Unlikely as it now appears that mutual incompatibility or other unforeseen circumstances could result in extreme mental suffering. If such becomes the case, I'm resolved for my part to accept it as part of our lives together. I have loved you dearly as a sweetheart and will continue to love you as my wife. But over and above that, I will love you with a Christian love that demands that I never react in any way towards you to jeopardize our prospects of entering heaven, which is the supreme object of both of our lives. And I pray that God himself will make our affection for one another perfect and eternal. Dude, that's profoundly good. I recognize right now the way that I'm feeling towards you. I can't possibly think of a scenario where this would happen, but if things go south and we can't figure it out and I endure extreme mental suffering and emotional turmoil because of it, I'm resolved that that's part of the commitment that I'm making in this covenant to bear that. That's so rare, so beautiful. That represents the heart of God and what he put inside of a marriage. Matthew chapter 19. I've got two passages of Scripture where I'm going to interpret them according to what I think is good biblical interpretation. That's a passion with me to not make things up, but to let the Word of God speak. And so I want to go through these two passages, Matthew 19, and then we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because I believe that they encompass the teaching of Jesus on Divorce and remarriage. Our mindset towards what marriage is needs to be, in some cases, radically altered. Verse 3 of Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? This question came out of differing Bible interpretations. It's the same today as it was then. People make up interpretations of Bible that suit their own lifestyle. That was the case then. So there's a passage, and you can look it up later. I'm not going to go to every passage here. We wouldn't be here all day. Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is this command from Moses that if a man finds any uncleanness in his wife, then he's to give her a certificate of divorce. And so that's what this is all about. There's two different prevailing schools of thought on this in the Jewish culture. Shammai is one rabbi. Hillel is the other one. Hillel is more conservative. Shammai basically said, yeah, if she makes a bad meal and she can't cook, get rid of her. She's gone. That, that really was it. Hillel was more like, no, the uncleanness there is talking about adultery. That's, that's the reason. So they're asking Jesus to pick sides. They came to him testing him. They wanted him to rile up opposition from one party or the other, which is the way the Pharisees operated. And he answered them and said, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus now is not listening to the arguments of the rabbis to start with. He's going back to what God's purpose was when he created them, which is always the best place to go. What is God's intent? What is God's heart? What does he want? That's our mantra here. Giving God what he wants. What does he want? Verse 5. 
and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That means to be bonded together. And the two shall become one flesh. There's a miracle that happens, and God bonds you together. Yes, that's talking about the sexual relationship, but you know as well as I do that there's a much deeper bonding that goes throughout your whole being that happens when you're married. God does that. It's a miracle. Why does he do that? Because he's demonstrating what's going to happen when his son comes and dies for the sins of the world and is raised from the dead and gathers to himself a body who is his bride, and they become one. God is all about oneness. And that love that flows between them and that absolute commitment is going to be demonstrated in this relationship that I'm making. So Jesus goes back to this. So they're no longer, verse 6, they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. That was never God's intent or his heart. That happened from hardness of heart. And I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Dude, that's tight. Are you talking about the perimeter? That's tight. I feel, I feel bound. I feel tight. I'm not free. No, you're not. If you're in a covenant, you're bound together. You're joined by God. Jesus wanted them to feel that for just a minute. And their response was exactly what happened around our table. Maybe it's better not to get married. Holy cow. And that's actually a good way to think. But here, here's always the silver lining. When we obey the Lord and follow his ways, he always gives us grace. And there's joy in the midst of the sacrifice that is sweeter than any other joy you will ever get. That's real. There's no amens there, but that is absolutely real. Jesus went to the cross despising the shame and the suffering that he was facing, being crucified, naked, scorned, humiliated, and mocked. He looked past all of that for the joy that was set before him. There's sweet joy in obedience to the Lord, even if it requires sacrifice. So, what is the exception in verse 9? It's immorality. That's not just adultery. What this word means is that you actually have a sexual relationship with somebody other than your spouse. Okay? Everybody hear what I'm saying? This is the one exception that Jesus made. If there's a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse, then that, is a, that can be. It doesn't have to be a deal breaker, but it can be. That is a reason for separating and breaking the covenant has been broken at that point. But I can tell you that there's thousands upon thousands of testimonies of people where there was adultery and serial adultery where they actually repented and came back and the Lord completely restored their marriage and they're happily married today. That's a fact. So it doesn't mean you have to or it's mandated, but it is a reason and it can be a reason that divorce is legitimate. Okay? 
Verse 11, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and then there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs for them, themselves for the kingdom of God's sake. So he's basically saying, yeah, for, for most people, marriage is the thing, but there are some people that are exceptional, like Paul, for example, was called to singleness. That's a beautiful calling. Paul said, if you, can, if, you can, if you have the grace for it, do that, because then you can devote all your energy and all your affection to getting the gospel out. So that's powerful as well. Immorality, I just want to clarify, is a physical act with a person. I do not believe that this word, which is the Greek word porneia, which you go, oh, that's pornography. That's where porn comes from. But it doesn't mean you're just fantasizing about somebody. I don't believe, personally, I hate porn with a passion. If you know me, you know that. I hate it. It's a tool of the devil. It's a hook that he gets into people's souls and destroys their life. Some of them he drags to hell with it. I know that's strong language, but I, I hate it. But listen, this, this is not talking about porn. I, I know somebody. I don't want to ramble too long. Friends of ours who went to Bible college with us. He was a pastor of a church. They served together. He w- watched porn. His wife said, that's it. I'm divorcing him. She divorced him. And I, I can't tell you the carnage that happened in their life, in hers especially, the children. Uh, it's just, it's tragic, tragic, tragic story. Am I saying because she did that? No, but that, that's not, that's not right grounds. That's not, watching porn is different. This word here for immorality means you have a sexual relationship with somebody else. It can be adultery. It can be prostitution. It can be homosexuality. It can be pedophilia. It can be anything that's abnormal like that outside of the bonds of marriage. That's what this word means, okay? But it's actually with a person. It's not a fantasy in your mind. Um, so just want to put that out there because we'd be in a mess with all the guys that we've got that have watched porn and then for their wife to pull out the porn card and go, I divorced you because of that. I don't believe that's legitimate, okay? Just putting it out there. You guys all right with this, just talking like family here? Hey, I don't believe that. All right, and then um, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is going to be our last passage. Just trying to lay the boundary. So Jesus gave the one exception, and that one exception is... It's immorality, okay, sexual immorality, having a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul deals with a couple of other issues because Jesus is speaking to Jews. Paul's talking to Gentiles in 1 Corinthians 7, and so they've got different issues where you have a wife who got saved out of idolatry and out of heathenism, and her husband didn't get saved. So then what do you do? So he addresses some of this. Um, but there's some good insight here, and I know a lot of you in your, in your mind are going, well, what do, what do you do with abuse? Like, do you know? Okay, we're going to talk about that. So just hang on. I believe that this passage deals with those issues. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Hang with me for just, give me just a few more minutes here. We can finish this. But to the married, this is verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. But to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Okay, that's the default. The wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, verse 11, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So this is assuming that they're believers in verse 10. So follow me here. The issue is you've got two believers that are married. He goes, the default is you don't leave your spouse. 
But if you do leave and you feel compelled like you have to leave, so I'm saying if your husband's a drug dealer or he's beating you with a baseball bat or he's punching you in the face, no, I don't ever counsel a woman to stay in a situation like that. You can separate yourself, but the purpose of the separation is for reconciliation. This is where the church should get involved. If this guy's a believer and he's treating his wife that way, then you should be calling the elders and going, look at my black eye. And then we're going to make a little house call and say, brother, what in the world are you doing? That's not okay with us. And there's going to be a confrontation to try to help bring the reconciliation and his repentance. So if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So the two options that she has, if she's a believer and she's married to another believer and he goes off the deep end and starts acting the fool, what's her two options? She can remain separated or she can reconcile. Does that give her the right to remarry? Does that give her the right to remarry in that passage? Come on, I'm just trying to speak truth. Is that what the, read what the Bible says? No, it doesn't. Because the relationship of a woman and a man in Christ has a purpose. It represents Christ in the church. And that relationship, you cannot cut it off and break it. It is supposed to be a lifelong thing. If you look at verse 39 of the same chapter real quick. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, that, that is the, the principle, that is the default, that death is really the only thing that should separate. Jesus made the exception with immorality. So let's go on and read here. <clears throat> Verse 11 again. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother, so Paul's not saying, hey, this is just my opinion, so just chill and take it however you want to. He, he, he has the spirit of the Lord. It's in Scripture. I totally believe that it's authoritative. But he's talking about a situation that was not addressed by Jesus because it didn't exist where Gentiles got saved and then their spouse did not get saved. What do you do in that case, Paul? I say to the rest, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So if you have an unbelieving spouse and they're content to stay with you, you must not. That, that must means you, you, you can't do that. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So this is the second reason if an unbeliever now, we're not talking about two believers, we're talking about an unbeliever. He goes, I don't want to live your lifestyle anymore. I'm sick and tired of you going to church and coming home and saying hallelujah. I don't want that anymore. I'm out of here. I'm going to go marry my secretary. Okay, if he leaves like that, it says the brother or sister is not under bondage. Under bondage to what? Okay, there's differences of opinion here, interpretation. I'll just put it out there. My belief and understanding in my study of this is that that means they're free from the bond of the covenant of marriage with that person. They're free. So if divorce is legitimate in the Scripture, remarriage is legitimate. If divorce is not legitimate, then the remarriage is not legitimate. That's the general principle. 
So you go, well, what happens if back in the days before Christ, I think, you want me to give my opinion on all these things? I believe that that is under the blood of Jesus, but you should definitely get counsel if you've had a divorce or a history of divorces or a series of divorces before you were saved. You should get some counsel from people who can help to guide you in spiritual ways on how to think to to identify patterns in your own life that might be detrimental in the marriage that you're going to enter into with another person. Okay. That's my opinion, so you can take that for what it's worth. But the Bible, what it says, it's the tracks that we run on. So those are the two exceptions as I see it. If you're believers, the only out that breaks the covenant is sexual immorality. If you're married to an unbeliever and they abandon the the marriage, then you're not under bondage anymore. You're free from that covenant. Can't talk about every single possible, you know, scenario, but those are the basic principles of Scripture. So what do we do as a covenant community? Um, One of the big things I think that's happened in the whole issue of divorce and remarriage, that people who are divorced for a while, um, Years, my early years in the church, you know, felt like they were second-class citizens and they could never function again. And they were, you know, scrambled eggs. How are you going to get them back together and all of that stuff? But look, in the community of Jesus Christ, there is restoration. And our job as a community is to restore. I get it that people have been married multiple times, divorced multiple times, and now they're in a marriage, which is maybe difficult and going on. But the The purpose for the community I see as being fivefold. We are supposed to help marriages to thrive in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. That's what we do as a community and as a body. So we support people in their marriages. We encourage them in their marriages. We counsel them in their marriages. We create God-glorifying mindsets and examples. So Brandon, Dave, and I, we're all married to the same woman that we were first married to. Some of us longer than others. We're not perfect. We've had our own issues. We'll be glad to talk with you about our issues. They mostly have to do with being dumb. But we'll be happy to talk with you about that and help you to navigate and encourage you in your journey in marriage because this matters to the Lord. This is not some incidental relationship that was made up by man. It was made by God when he created the first two people in the garden. Oh, this is what I'm going to cause that to look like, and this is what is going to be the meaning of it. So that's important. It should be to us. So as a community, we want to create God-glorifying mindsets. In this body, we honor marriage. We honor it. We value it. We honor children. We value life in this body. They're not a nuisance or a burden or a hindrance. They're a blessing from God and they're an inheritance. We encourage and we strengthen. We also warn and correct and intervene when necessary. When there's crisis happening, when there's ungodly things happening in a relationship, then we we will definitely warn and correct. And then we help to rebuild. Where there's pieces out there, the community, part of our job is to help to rebuild. Like, you can't unscramble eggs. I get it if there's all of this history of, yeah, well, I committed adultery over there because I had divorced, and I get that. Here's what you have to do. I don't believe in this um, language that was put out years ago that if you divorce unrighteously and then you remarry, you're living in adultery. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. So then every time you have a relationship with your spouse, now you're committing adultery again. Like, there's no hope. What's your hope then? 
You're either going to continue on that way and go to hell because all adulterers go to hell, or you have no way out. That's not the Lord. That's the enemy that puts that thought out there. There is repentance. If you've committed adultery by wrongly divorcing your spouse, you repent from the Lord, from your heart. God, I was wrong. I sinned. I committed adultery. I caused them to commit adultery. Wash me and cleanse me. But now I'm in the place that I'm at. Maybe it's two or three spouses down the road. Maybe it is. But at that point, now God's best for you is to restore and to build into the relationship that you've got everything that he wants out of it. And so we're part of that process to try to help. That's what community does with this issue. It's sticky, right? This is, anybody felt awkward here this morning just talking about this stuff? Like, this is awkward to talk about it, but we need to do this as a family because this is how we look. So listen, understand, we don't look down. If you've had a history of divorces and remarriages, we don't look down on you. We don't go, oh, you're damaged goods. Now you can never do anything for God. That's a lie. Jesus, the blood of Jesus. It's sufficient. If it's sufficient to cleanse murderers, adulterers, homosexuals, all of those things that the Bible says, it's sufficient to cleanse you. And when he cleanses and he fills, he brings his kingdom. You're not damaged goods if you've gone through those things. So we start where we're at and we go after God and we reorient. If we need to reorient what our center is, we go after and we do that. All right. Thank you, guys. You've been patient this morning. Wanted to get that out there. There's, there's exciting messages, and then there's essential messages. This was more on the essential side. So if you'll bow your heads with me, I just want to pray for us as a congregation. And if you, if you have need in, in your marriage or even navigating um, past history with divorce, remarriage, uh, I encourage you to reach out to us. We would love to help and encourage you. You won't find a pointing finger here from us. We want the heart of the Redeemer to restore. So, Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the men and women and children in this room. I thank you for your great heart for them. Lord, I pray that you would reach out as the Redeemer over every heart where there might be raw places, where there might be chafed places and broken places, that you would reach out with your hand, that you would touch those places, that you would begin to cause healing and restoration, and that you would bring every person in this body into a place of wholeness and fullness, that all the condemnation of the past would be cast away under the blood of Jesus, and that they would be moving on into the new way that you have ordained for us. Father, I pray that no one would get stuck, and I pray that you would help them to get out if they're stuck right now. And I pray that you would build into this body, Lord, mindsets of restoration and redemption, and that we would actually be instruments of your hand and of your restoration to bring wholeness and fullness into every member of this body. Let it be so, Lord. Let restoration flow like a river through this place and restore every broken relationship we ask. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right. Thank you, guys. We love you lots. Hope you have a great day.